welcome, and thank you for joining us today for the teaching and preaching ministry from Central Baptist Church in Kannapolis, North Carolina. As student pastor, Justin Stevers shares from the Bible how to live in a fallen world. The goal of Central Baptist Church is to change the world by teaching the Word of God. Come, let's listen in. A lot of you guys know that Lizzie and I um, have a cat. Well, we have two, but we only care about one. Um, this cat's name is Francis Schaefer Stevers, named after an old dead guy, as you can imagine. Um, and he uh, is actually a stray cat, and the first day that we moved into our house, our neighbor beside us, um, Johnny, comes up and is like, hey, you want a cat? <laughs> Like, uh, well, I guess so. Uh, he was really cute, a little kitten, like that big. So we took him. He had fleas. Um, it was gross for a while. But um, we took Francis, and man, he is a great cat. He's got some, like, Maine Coon in him, so he's, like, one of those big, like, fluffy cats, and he kind of acts like a dog. And really, like, just the best you can ask for, right? A cat that acts like a dog, right? Like, all the benefits of a cat, like, goes in the litter box, cleans itself, um, all the benefits of a dog. I've taught it to actually sit down in Nene. Some of the young adults and youth, you've seen that. Um, he can actually sit on command and then Nene, where you know, but anyway, where he like puts his paws up in the air. Um, but lately, this cat has been sitting at the door and scheming. He's been plotting at the front door of the house. And he's been trying to escape. And he's been, uh, he's gotten out a couple of times and fortunately, this cat doesn't get very far. He, he just kind of gets in the grass and he squats down and he starts chewing on the grass like an idiot. Um, but then once you get close to him and once I try to pick him up, guess what? He just turns into a demon. It's like he completely forgot who he was. He completely forgot who I was. And this cat just turned into a demon right before my eyes. Like, uh, like exorcist, I've called a couple priests um, because of it. But, but he wants to go outside and he wants to stay outside. And outside, for all you campers and stuff, is just objectively worse than inside, right? There's bugs outside. It gets cold outside. There's, there's no air conditioning or heat. Uh, there's an obnoxious pug that lives across the street and always gets out and comes to our front door and barks at you. Uh, there are cars going up and down the road, so it's dangerous, and inside, Francis has it made. He has it so made that the vet told us he needs to lose some weight. Like, that's how good he has it. But for some reason, he forgets how good he has it, and he keeps trying to run outside. He keeps trying to return to his old ways of being astray. And even though it's not him anymore, he's domesticated now. Those other strays across the street would just tear him up he still wants to go back and he wants to hold on to that old life. And that is a cheesy introduction. That's a cheesy picture of the Christian life that we so often see, right? It's a cheesy picture of the, 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 the church at Corinth that Paul has been talking to. They have it made on the inside. But for some reason, they keep on wanting to go back. They have been rescued like Francis was rescued. They have been saved from the world, but they keep trying to go back. And Paul 
as we've been going through uh, 1 Corinthians, has been rebuking them just like I wish I could rebuke Francis. But for some reason, he doesn't get it. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and flip in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you're flipping there, I hope you remember some of the context of 1 Corinthians. Paul is writing to this messed up church. And he's lovingly but sternly calling them out. He's telling them, stop letting the world, stop letting culture influence you. But instead, be countercultural. Be influenced by the word of God. Paul has been addressing uh, the first issue in this letter, which is divisiveness. The church is divided. And as we remember, uh, Jesus, in his teachings, he said, this is how they will know you are my disciples, by your love for one another. And Jesus also said, Father, make them one as we are one, because in seeing that, the world will know that I came from you. Jesus said, the church's unity will show the world that Christ the Son came from Christ, from God the Father. So, so unity is essential to the church's witness, but the church in Corinth is doing everything but being united. And Paul is calling them out. People were going around, they were saying that I'm better than you because I follow this preacher. I'm better than you because I follow that preacher baptized me. And this is a, a, a practice that the culture at the time had, um, and Paul is saying that is foolish. We don't follow culture, we follow the crucified king. Something that looks foolish in the wisdom of the world and something that's offensive to the eyes of the Jews. And he said, true wisdom comes by the spirit alone. It cannot be understood by those who are controlled by the flesh. And that's what we talked about last time in chapter two of 1 Corinthians. And that takes us up to 1 Corinthians chapter three. And today we're gonna to be in verses one through nine. So with all that in mind, if you are able and you want to, let's stand as we honor the word of God. We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter three, verses one through nine. And Paul says this, and I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able, for ye are, not, are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? or fleshly, or worldly. Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that planteth anything, neither is he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. Now he that planteth and he that watereth are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. 
for we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry. Ye are God's building. Let's pray, and we'll dive into it. God, you are so good. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how much grace and mercy you have shown us to be here and to hear from you. Lord, I pray we will listen to you, we will hear you, and then we will go out doers of your word, Jesus. It's in your name we pray, amen. You can have a seat. So today, I want us to look at two pictures that Paul lays out in this passage. And these two pictures should cause us to reflect on our own hearts, and it should cause us to eagerly pursue the Lord with our lives. And um, I got creative. It wasn't even creative, but with the title said, Filet or Formula, You Decide. So fillets or formula, are we going to be meat eaters or milk drinkers? And I hope we're encouraged by what Paul has to say. So first, notice the picture, the first picture, which is of the immature Christian. And that's verses 1 through 4. Remember that last time, at the end of chapter 2, Paul said that those who do not have the Spirit are completely unable to understand the wisdom of God. Those who are of the flesh cannot understand the things of God. Only those in the spirit can discern these spiritual things. And that's especially of salvation that comes through the crucified Christ. These, those who are in the flesh, Paul said last time at the end of chapter 2, They do not have the true wisdom of God. And now, Paul says, brothers, I want to talk to you as if you were someone in the Spirit. I want to talk to you like you were in the Spirit, but I have to talk to you as if you were carnal, as if you were fleshly. And don't miss the shock of that statement. Um, This is why I've been really emphasizing, especially lately, it seems like, Uh, to the youth over and over again that context is king. Um, For all of us real estate experts, um, since I'm a homeowner, I'm an expert at real estate. And there's one thing that I always say since I'm an expert. One thing's important in real estate. No, three things, sorry. Location, 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 right? Have you heard that before? Um, I feel like that's, that's, that's gotta be cheesy. Like, Someone who, who knows realty, tell me I'm wrong. But I feel like if you have a sweet spot at the beach, I could sell you that cardboard box for 200000 right? You know? So location, location, location. At least it sounds good. But for us Bible readers, for us Bible students in this room, there are three important things when you're reading the Bible. And that's context, context, context. You could also, I I think location actually works for that too. But context, context, context. Uh, There's a mug um, that I would like to have one day. It says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. Um, I sent sent a picture of that to Trey the other day. Um, but, But keep in mind the context. Remember, 
what Paul just said at the end of chapter two. He said, those who are of the spirit can understand these things of God, but those who are of the flesh cannot understand these things of God. And then he goes on and says, I can't talk to you as if you were in the spirit. I can't talk to you as if you were in the spirit. I have to talk to you as someone who is fleshly, as those who are perishing. I can't even talk to you as a Christian right now, is what Paul is saying. I feel like, I mean, those are some harsh words, and I I hope we can maybe step back and imagine yourself being in the church in Corinthians, uh, in the church in Corinth's shoes, right? Your spiritual father, this guy you look up to so much, says, I can't even talk to you like a Christian because you look so much like an unbeliever. But then he goes on, he, he, he softens it. He softens his little rebuke, just a tiny bit though. It's still a very harsh rebuke. And he says, I can speak to you as babies in Christ. So Paul is saying that these believers are saved, he said, in Christ, right? But they have chronic BBS, big baby syndrome. They will not grow up. And now Paul has to talk to them as those little babies who don't grow up. And you know how people talk to little babies, right? So Haddon um, has been, the last few weeks, like crawling. He has been... uh, just zooming through the house. And it's kind of amazing, actually. I'm super impressed that just a few weeks ago, this guy who couldn't move three weeks, three, three weeks, three feet by himself is now just zooming, like going room to room. And then he's not only going room to room, he's like grabbing furniture and pulling himself up and like standing. And then he like moves over to other furniture. And it's super impressive. And it's awesome that this little eight, eight month old just learned how to do this in the past few weeks. And then Lizzie and I get excited and we're super impressed and we get down and we say, wow, that's awesome. Good job, buddy. You're getting so big. But what happens if 20 years from now, Haddon is still wearing that same diaper? He's still scooting across the floor. Maybe he's going fast. He's zooming room to room. And then he goes up and he grabs some furniture and he stands up. Are Lizzie and I gonna stoop down and say, wow, good job, buddy. You're getting so big. I hope we're not like that. I hope that's not the case. Something's wrong with that picture. And that's exactly the picture that Paul is giving of these Christians at this church. Paul is saying that is the way this church is acting. It's just as ridiculous as a grown man in diapers saying goo goo gaga. Goo goo gaga? I don't know how you pronounce it. You're too old for this, Paul says. Verse two, Paul says, you know, it it made sense at first that I had to give you milk when you were babies in Christ, but now I still have to give you milk. You should be digesting steak. You shouldn't be sipping on milk. This isn't healthy for you. They have big baby syndrome. And this is the big, this is the picture that, Paul gives us of a stagnant and an immature believer. And he calls them carnal in this passage. Now, uh, 
there was, without getting into the weeds, there was a big theological debate in evangelical Bible-believing churches in the 60s through the 80s. And this debate will ebb and flow uh, every few generations. And ironically, this passage, this passage that's about church unity, was one of the main passages that was causing so much division in the church. And again, without getting into the weeds, Paul is not giving us some category of Christian here who, who, who walks an aisle, who made Jesus their savior, but then lived as functional atheists for the rest of their life. And then they die 60 years later and still go to heaven. That is not the category that Paul is saying here. Paul is not saying that there's a category of Christians called carnal Christians who, who made Jesus their savior, but haven't yet made, them, made him their Lord. There's no separation that Paul is making there. What he is saying is that Christians can experience a season or seasons, even prolonged seasons, of lack of growth. But this season for a true Christian, for a true believer, is a temporary season. This cannot be defining of their whole lives. If this carnality defines one's whole life, besides that one time they walked an aisle and then the rest of their 60 years of life, they're a functional atheist. If that's the only thing, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, they should examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith at all. Spurgeon gave an illustration. Think of two apple trees. We talked about this in Sunday school this morning. But think of two apple trees in a field. Apple tree one, year after year, leaves pop up in the spring, then I think, do apple trees blossom with flowers? Probably. And then a big apple fruit comes out. And then year after year, tree, uh, leaves fall off, leaves come back. Fruit comes up, fruit falls off, right? Year after year, that tree is producing fruit. Sometimes it's more fruit. Sometimes it's less fruit. Sometimes the deer get to it. Um, my dad has some apple trees, and he's actually had bears. Uh, I think there's like three bears that have been coming to their house lately. But... Um, why, why did I say that? Oh, so year after year, it's producing fruit. Then you can conclude that that tree is alive. But then there's a tree next to it, tree number two. And year after year, you've never seen even a leaf on that tree. You haven't seen any signs of life. And then one year goes by, two years, five a decade goes by, and you haven't seen a leaf, a flower, or any fruit whatsoever. You would have good reason to believe that that tree is dead, right? What well, Jesus said, abide in me, and I will produce fruit. I am the true vine. If you abide in me, I will produce the fruit in you. Then he talks about there will be other branches that are on me. And those branches that don't produce fruit are dead branches that are only good for cutting off and casting into the fire. 
So Paul isn't, isn't giving this category of a perpetually carnal Christian. Uh, throughout the Bible, we see that you are either in Christ or you, you're dead in your sins. There's no two-tier system of Christianity. You're either alive or you're dead. And Paul is, is, is not saying that this, this walk down the aisle, live as an atheist guy is a true Christian. He's saying he's more like tree number two. And how tragic for that person's soul, that man who walked an aisle, who lives as an atheist, how tragic for his soul if a church just let him stay on the membership rolls and think that he's fine. How tragic would it be if the church affirmed that that man, since he walked an aisle, is alive in Christ? Even though, and how tragic would it be if they've never warned him that his life doesn't show any signs of spiritual life? And I'm afraid there's, there's many churches today who would comfort themselves just saying, well, that's, they're, they're a carnal Christian. They're a carnal Christian. I, I remember that revival when they walked the aisle. But they've never actually experienced the saving grace of the Lord. And the good news is there's hope for that second tree. The good news is if, if, if that's describing you, then the Lord has hope for you. And that is, it's never too late to turn and trust in Jesus. You are never too far gone from the hands of God's grace. God has made a way through Christ, through his life, his death, his resurrection. For everyone, anyone, whoever turns to him and believes in him, God has made a way for them to be saved. Even a terrorist like Paul or an apathetic Christian, someone who calls himself a Christian, can be brought into the family of God. So there is hope for the second tree, and we must be like Paul and lovingly bear one another's burdens and point each other to the cross. Tree one and tree two, we should be pointing everyone to the cross of Christ. But continuing in the text, when we see this picture of a big baby, it should bring to our mind, it should bring a question to our mind, how did they get there? How did, how did grown adult people get to a point where they're big babies sucking their thumbs? Verse three, they're still carnal. They're still worldly. They're still loving their sin. And it isn't that they, they don't know the right answers. I'm sure they could sit through any Sunday school class and amen at the right time. But their actions showed that they still love this world, that they still love their former master, sin. And what does Paul say the evidence of this love of the flesh, this love of sin is? It's their divisiveness, it's their envying, and it's their strife. These Christians are showing that they're big babies because they can't get along with each other. They are jealous of one another. They're jealous of gifts and abilities and jobs and status and wealth. They're gossiping and backbiting. They may 
be sweet and cordial to each other's face, and then immediately turn around and talk about that person behind their back. This is stuff that giant babies do, not that Christians do. Christians who have been made a new creation, freed from the power of sin and filled with the Holy Spirit, they don't live like that, Paul says. Paul says to that person, you are acting like you are led by the flesh. You are led by your sin, and you are not acting like you are led by the Spirit. So since this text brought it up, let's talk about this divisiveness. A tool that the enemy is using today and has been for a long time, is the normalization, that's a good word, the normalization of gossip in the church. The enemy is using this as a tool to divide and make churches ineffective with the gospel. This gossip doesn't promote unity in Christ, but it shows that someone is truly selfish in their heart. And This is happening in churches like ours, Bible-believing, active, otherwise effective churches. But the devil makes us think that, you know, well, I mean, talking about that person, it it wasn't a big deal. I'm just venting. Everyone else does it, and we end up creating divisions in the church. We end up isolating members of God's flock, and we create a toxic environment. So we, as the church, need to be diligent to kill this sin in our lives. We should be overly sensitive when we are around something that even smells like gossip. If, if we showed up to Toy Share and we were volunteering and one of the volunteers is walking around cussing like a sailor, I think most of us would be pretty uncomfortable, right? Well, we should feel the same way when someone is gossiping in the church when someone's saying something negative behind someone's back. So how do we get to a place where we can kill such an acceptable, such a not that big a deal sin in our lives? Well, one, we realize that this sin specifically leads to big baby syndrome. And two, uh, just three quick thoughts actually. Uh, First, we avoid the situation. If we hear, if we sniff something that even seems like gossip, we should avoid the situation, we should call it out, and we should leave. Don't contribute, don't affirm, don't laugh, just, or, and don't just stay quiet, affirming it by your presence. We should call out that sin in love, right? Not pharisaical, not with a giant log sticking out of your eye, right? That's what Jesus said, but we should Make sure that we've taken the logs out of our eyes and then we can help our brother get the speck out of their eye. But address it. Number two, I say this to the youth a lot. We talked about it in Sunday school. Think before you speak. Um, maybe you've heard this before, but one, we're to be slow to speak, right? And we should, in our slowness of speaking, we should think before we speak. And that means, that's an acronym. Think. T, is it true? H, is it helpful? No, honest. I, is it inspiring? N, is it necessary? K, is it kind? I can think of a lot of things that are true, but they aren't kind, right? Like, I think in Sunday school, oh, Joe wasn't there, actually. Um, Was that kind of me? Uh, I said, Noah, you smell bad. Maybe it's true, but it's not kind. 
the joke was Noah didn't smell bad. Um, but we, we should, this time, is that what you said? <laughs> we should think before you speak. Well, that's weird. No one else does that. Exactly. We are supposed to be weird. We're supposed to be set apart from the world. Well, I, I just tell it like it is. I'm sorry if your feelings get hurt. Well, the Bible says an evidence of your salvation is that you're growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if you're just telling it like it is, but you're telling it like it is without love, without kindness, without patience or gentleness or self-control, then you're not telling it like it is as a Christian. And three, uh, one last thought on killing gossip is, is to gossip positively about others, is to tell people, tell others about how great someone is and then tell that to their face. Say encouraging things about other people. Paul says, use your language to build up each other, to edify the church. Say encouraging things. So gossip positively. I've gossiped about some of the students here all the time. Like Bella is so great in small groups. She is always dropping nuggets of wisdom. I'm always so encouraged when I hear her speak up in small groups. She is so sharp. Brag on Bella and tell her. I'm always impressed. We must kill gossip and kill divisiveness or we will be in danger of drifting and being that ridiculous picture of that 40-year-old man in a diaper. And I think anyone who's, who's reading this passage and who cares and, and should have the question pop up in their mind, could this possibly be me? I think anyone who's reading this should have that pop up. Could this be me? Could I be living, following my flesh instead of following Christ? Am I growing in my relationship with the Lord? Am I eating the filet mignon that Christ promised me? Or am I trying to sip on the formula that I should have grown out of? And I think we should constantly be trying to be more and more aware of these areas of our life and that would fall into this. The more we grow in maturity and in holiness in Christ, we should see how disgusting our sin really is. And we shouldn't be content with seeing that we have sin and then still walking around, still dragging it with us, just in case I want to go back, right? Like James has a picture of that. It's like looking in the mirror, seeing that gross thing in your teeth, but oh well, I don't care. And you go away and you forget. So we should be aware of these areas and take the uncomfortable, take the painful, the self-denying steps to kill the sin in our life through prayer, through confessing to one another, through bearing one another's burdens. And that's what the Christians in the second point that Paul gives us do. So look at the second picture of the maturing Christian in verses five through nine. And notice I said maturing Christians because sanctification is always ongoing. It's a never-ending process in this life. The Christian life is an uphill marathon. It has difficulties, it has dips, it has trips, but the trajectory is up towards maturity. So look at this picture of a maturing Christian that Paul shows us, and these maturing Christians understand three things. 
first, the maturing Christian understands his or her role. Verse five, who then is Paul? Who is Apollos? But ministers by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Uh, another way to translate that Greek text says that they are servants through whom you believed, even and, and each has the role the Lord has given. They are just servants. They are just ministers. The Greek word there is diakonos. What, what word, what English word do you think comes from diakonos? Deacon, yes, one gold star. The idea is a servant, a table waiter at a restaurant. That's, that's what would come into their mind when they heard that word, diakonos. Now, I don't wanna brag or anything, but back in the day, I was a two-star waiter at the Cracker Barrel. <laughs> and do you know what separates us two stars from those one stars? A two-star is someone who looks out and anticipates others' needs. It's someone who is more concerned about the needs of someone else and fulfilling the goals of the team rather than looking after oneself. Now, in reality, the difference between one and two stars is how much time you've worked there, but uh, <laughs> my, my point still stands. A good waiter looks out for the needs of others and does everything to help meet those needs. A good waiter is concerned about lifting the team up and helping others. And Paul is saying, what, what, what am I? What is Apollos? We're just waiters. We're just trying to serve the church. And maturing Christians understand their roles that the Lord has given them and fulfills those in God's strength and for God's glory. As Paul will say later in this letter, the church needs these different roles made of different people with different giftings. There's no room for sideline spectators. The church needs you now. It needs you to serve and to give and to go and make disciples. And a maturing Christian understands this. Second, a maturing Christian understands God's sovereignty. God's in control. Verses six and seven, God is in control. He is the one who gives the growth. Well, God is all powerful and in control. Isaiah says he declares the end from the beginning. So why, why, why do we do anything? Why should we evangelize? Why should we pray? Shouldn't we just let go and let God? Well, we do these things because God in his sovereignty uses means to accomplish his ends. He uses people to accomplish his purpose. Yes, God is in control. A maturing Christian understands that God is in control. He does the work. He provides the growth. But a maturing Christian knows that God wants to use our planting and our watering to accomplish this purpose. And a maturing Christian wants to and is excited to be a part of God's story. The all-powerful sovereign king we get to be on his team and give him glory. So be faithful in the little things. Be faithful in praying for your friends, families, neighbors, leaders. Be faithful in sharing the gospel. Be faithful and excited knowing that the Lord will use even people like me and you. And third, the maturing Christian understands our purpose 
end of verse 8, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. Maturing Christians are not living for the applause or approval of men. They're not living to impress and move up the ladder of success. Maturing Christians are living for an eternal reward. And we should have that eternal perspective. One that focuses on Christ our King. One that understands that this world is fleeting. It's passing away. One that understands that we are going to stand before God, the holy and perfect judge, and he's gonna say to us one day, well done, good and faithful servant, or he's gonna say, depart from me, for I never knew you. He's gonna glorify us and give us a crown, or he's gonna cast us away for living in rebellion. And the maturing Christian is thinking of that day. The maturing Christian is living for that day. The maturing Christian is preparing their hearts to meet their Savior face to face and is preparing others to meet him as well. And that is the all-consuming purpose of a maturing Christian, to labor and to love the Lord, labor in love for the Lord and his purpose. Is that your all-consuming purpose? As we reflect and um, Barry and I think Megan come up to do a verse. Is that your all-consuming purpose? Is that, could that be said of you? The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it, it, it hits the nail on the head. It says, the chief end of man, man exists. Man's main purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is our main purpose. And if someone looked at your life, would that be the obvious purpose that they see? Or would they see someone going through the motions? Would they see someone going to church on Wednesdays and Sundays, but the rest of the days, they live like everyone else? Gossip on their lips, lust in their eyes, selfishness in their hearts. As we reflect, what area of your life do you need to give over to the Spirit? What sin do you need to kill through the power of Christ? The maturing Christian will always have these areas and will see their desperate need to kill that area and to pursue Christ. So I pray that the Lord will give us awareness to understand our purpose of pursuing Christ and awareness to kill the sin that we need Thank you for listening today. If you would like to know more about Central Baptist Church events and ministries, please visit our webpage at cbckannapolis.com.